श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय ग्रंथरा श्रीमद् भागवतम की जय गौर प्रेम आनंदे वेलकम सो वी कंटिन्यू आवर डिस्कशन ऑफ श्रीमद् भागवतम फर्स्ट कैंटो चैप्टर 3 टुडे वी कम टू the most significant verse verse 28 ete chamsa kalapumsa krishna stu bhagavan sayam indrari vyakulam lokam mridayanti duge duge so this verse comes at the end of the description brief description and partial description of the avatars it was asked by the sages of sutta in the first chapter tell us about his avatars and so they asked about his avatars is one of the six questions they asked which are being answered and this uh, answer to this question is coming here in this third chapter <clears throat> and as i say the have been described now upon ending the description sutta gosami said that they are countless like waves on the ocean innumerable these are some and we get a pretty good uh sampling from the list also we find different types of shakyavesha avatars leela avatars purusha avatars and so forth so it's a a big topic of the tartatva and uh a pretty good sampling of the different types of avatars have been mentioned in brief and they of course have been described as issuing from the purusha this is a reference to the garbhadakshay vishnu who is the oversoul of the universe if you will of each universe there's one such all of whom come out of the multiverse that has its origins in the um, mahavishnu we talked about this at some length we have the mahavishnu the garbhadakshay vishnu the shirodakshay vishnu from the biggest from whom poetically speaking universes are emanating the big consciousness behind the multiverse and within each universe and within each atom within each universe of the largest to the smallest smallest uh, of sizes if you will covering everything this is the purusha the knower the controller hmm? the overseer of the uh, sub the unconscious uh, the, of the absolute matter hmm? um and so in the context of the manifesting of the multiverse entering into each universe and bringing forth out of necessity the avatars out of necessity because the the purusha expresses himself enjoy by way of becoming many the one becomes many 
The many are small, the one is big, and the many get in trouble in relation to the unconscious or matter. And so he avatars, you know, he crosses from up, it means to down, in different ways to um, help the individual jivas meet their maker. This is the story. Hmm? So the point here that's being made amongst many uh, kind of um, subplots and so forth is a mention of the cosmology of the Bhagavatam as given here. We, we've talked about it as kind of a beginning introduction to that big idea that has considerable correspondence with modern theories um, regarding cosmology and, and the theories that have arisen as a result of the problem in in science and cosmology as to what comes before the Big Bang. This is a quandary, and theories have arisen, some to kind of resolve that, uh, some of which have a very strong correspondence with the idea of the, the cyclical time of the Bhagavatam, multiverse conception, expanding and contracting um, universes that, that carry with them as they contract an imprint of the previous expansion, which informs the next expansion. You can see, just by talking about it briefly, there's much correspondence with the idea of the Bhagavatam, in which the same idea, the same concept, more or less is described uh, poetically, or, well, I want to say, not objectively, but rather from a deep subjective uh, experience of the subjective aspect of reality. Consciousness, that elusive uh, subject, ourselves, so deeply entering into that, they talked about the world in relation to it, understanding by their first-hand experience, subjective experience, the implications of consciousness. They found it causal, as we intuitively think it to be. And they took a means to to verify that, at least for themselves. And of course, we find that their verification has considerable correspondence with others who have done the same thing. And for that matter, cross-culturally and with uh, among the different mystic um, uh, subsets of the major religions. Experiential spirituality, as opposed to religion, has some much more correspondence. Religion is at odds with itself, with its other forms, so to speak. Whereas the mystics, they have some differences, but they're much more subtle. They're much more in common. They have a common experience of the more hmm, that um, we sense life is about, and that more is largely themselves and and their source. So, this is just one of the subplots here. The main point that's being made here in this connection is what comes up in this verse. We find that uh, Sri Krishna was addressed as Bhagavan in the first chapter. The sages wanted to know about Bhagavan, Vasudev, Krishna. The name Krishna was mentioned in the efficacy of chanting the name as well, especially in the present... uh, time cycle and so forth. 
Um, but he was referred to there as Bhagavan. When this chapter began, speaking about the Purusha, we heard Jagrihe Purusham Rupam Bhagavan Maharadibe. The subject is Bhagavan. Bhagavan took the form of the Purusha. Purusha means the Paramatma. Paramatma means a Vish, the, the three Vishnus. Oversoul, capacity, uh, the uh, uh, all-knowing, um, overseeing the again the unconscious or the objective world. So the Bhagawan became the Purusha. It indicates to us something that was brought up in the second chapter. Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavan Iti Bhagavan is the full feature, the full experience of the Absolute. We have the being feature, the being aspect the knowing aspect, and the loving aspect. So, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagwan. And Bhagwan is the loving aspect. So, Godhead is described here in Bhagavatam as being, knowing, and loving. And a non-dual absolute, that nonetheless, the kind of eternal moments that are uh, the composite of the Absolute, this being, knowing, and, and loving, can be separated out by way of, in terms of experience, by different types of practitioners. So different types of approaches to the non-dual Absolute will afford different visions, subjective visions, experiences of the Absolute. The being experience, the knowing experience, the loving experience. Hmm? So we've talked about this at some length. <clears throat> and it'll come up here as well, as it should in this section, where Bhagawan is being emphasized, first of all, as the uh, of whom the Purusha or the Paramatma is a partial manifestation. And who, as this verse says, in its fullest expression is Krishna. Bhagavan is Krishna in the fullest sense of the term Bhagavan. And again, Bhagavan is the loving aspect. So those who know a little bit about this, well, that makes perfect sense, yes. Um, but we should uh, go into it at some depth. So the Bhagavan who's mentioned in the first chapter, Bhagavan who's mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, from who, who becomes the Purusha, from whom the avatars come, and so forth. And they've been described. Now this section is, is ended. Hmm? And it says, Ete chamsa kalapum sam krishnas tu bhagavan svayam. Ete, of all these, cha angsa kala. Of all these angsas, or partial manifestations of divinity, known as avatars, and cha, and those who haven't been mentioned, it means also all of them. They are ete chamsakalapungsam. They all have their origins, at least in this world, uh, from the Purusha. Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam. Too means but here. But Krishna is Bhagavan Swayam. So he is the Bhagavan then that the Purusha is a partial manifestation of from whom the avatars come. 
Therefore, he's not one of the avatars. This is the idea. Hmm? Now, someone may object. Bhagavatam is not an easy book to understand, hmm? especially now in our times. It's old. It's um, ancient, we should say. It's in a different language. So that's an unspoken language today, for the most part. A very complex language. It's speaking about the most profound philosophical and theological truths in poetry. That's uh, hard enough to understand ordinary poetry, all of which is supposed to be profound, I suppose, uh, from the poet's perspective. But here is a you know, dissertation on the nature of being uh, and knowing and loving, I guess you could say. That's, that's about it. That's the whole thing in poetry. And it's long. It's 18,000 verses. And it consists of questions and answers in which, in which there are further questions and answers within the answers to the questions. Someone asks the question and the other party gives the answer. In the context of giving the answer, he cites a previous incident where someone asked a similar question and an answer is given. And you can go <laughs> a couple of times into that and then you, where am I, so to speak? You know? And it comes back to, oh yes, these two, the original question was here. It's a speaking of the Bhagavatam on the part of Sutta Goswami to the sages of Naimisharanya, who heard it from Sugadev Goswami, who spoke it to the Raj Parikshit, and that speaking is contained within the narrative of Sutta Goswami. And inside that, the speaking of the Bhagavatam from Krishna to Brahma at the dawn of creation is contained. Hmm? Also within the text is, this, is the speaking of the Bhagavatam from Sankarshan to the Kumaras. Well, it's a very complex subject, difficult to understand. Today, uh, or during at its t- uh, the time of its uh, its uh, compilation, difficult to understand. Oh, it was indeed. Uh, uh, it is has been overlooked. Whereas the Gaudiya saints have said that look nowhere else but the Bhagavatam and what all of the sacred texts are seeking to say in an indirect way as it's being said directly. Hmm? This was 500 years ago, the work of Jiva Goswami highlighting the Bhagavatam as he did and his, his, his uh, contemporaries, teachers, Rupsanatana and so forth. Hmm? This was a revolutionary idea at the time, even within Vaishnavism, that this would be the, the, the principal form of evidence amongst the, co- the common standard of knowledge, the sacred text. Revelation was the standard of knowledge at that time, hmm? in a very theistic uh, climate, uh, in the subcontinent of India. Hmm? And the Shruti, or the Upanishads, were given precedence with regard to revelation, whereas the what was considered the secondary revelation, the Puranas, that the Bhagavatam seems to fall within, was given a secondary position. Jiva Goswami gave the Puranas the first consideration. This was very revolutionary. And amongst them, the Bhagavatam, a special position. And it sounds very revolutionary. It was for its time, but if you look at the argument, you see... Well, this book, Bhagavatam, it's, it's really of a different nature altogether than the rest of the Puranas. 
There's no comparison from a literary point of view, from a theological point of view, the depth of theology uh, and so forth. Um, it's uh, um, uh, uh, amongst the Puranas, amongst the Itihasas, amongst the Upanishads for that matter. It fulfills, as Jiva Goswami would say, the Puranas do. Purana, it, it completes hmm, the the kind of um, more aphoristic uh, and obtruse statements of the Upanishads. Um, the stories play out the truths of the Upanishads and make them that much more accessible. Therefore, they're primary. Hmm? He would look at it like that. Uh, and beyond that, the Bhagavatam is uh, special amongst the Puranas, which a chorus of Puranas chime in to say themselves, glorifying the Bhagavad. So, despite all that, then these are all points that Jiva Goswami brought out, which was revolutionary at the time. The Bhagavatam was not well understood. And it was written, according to the text itself, to make clear what, what Vyasa really wanted to say in saying everything else that he said, the legendary you know, author of all the texts, as he's thought to be. So, now we're in a very different time. We're not in a theistic climate, by any means. We speak a different language. We have very different sensibilities today. We have hundreds of years of science and Western philosophy uh, divorced from revelation, as it was not in India at the time. Uh, it was a half, and even in Europe, philosophy was a handmaiden to philosophy until Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, started to reason and... Uh, about uh, faith and reason and, and so forth. And then, of course, from there, eventually, philosophy became entirely unhinged from revelation, freedom for the mind to just, and intellect just to run free and and end up empty, of course, as it has. Empty. Hmm. Empty. So philosophy is running on empty hmm, today. Bhagavatam come to fill it up, <laughs> fill it up uh, with a wealth of insight about the nature of being, existence, meaning, and so forth. But it's not easy to understand. Hmm? So, although we're explaining in a way that seems, well, that's obviously what the book says, uh, the point is that the book, these points were not picked up by previous um, teachers of the Bhagavatam or people who had dabbled in the Bhagavatam. And as I said the other night, pretty much that's what you find, a dabbling in the Bhagavatam only hmm? from other um, lineages of Vedanta, both monistic and theistic. The Gaudi lineage, on the other hand, uh, uh, personified by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, the founder of his own Sampradaya, so to speak, he embraced the Bhagavatam like his own heart. So, here you'll find from the Gaudi is such a beautiful explanation of the Bhagavatam. And this clear idea here that's being made that Krishna is uh, the, not, not only is he not an, an avatar, um, he is um, the source of the Purusha from whom all the avatars come and the source of the Bhagavan Narayan and Vaikuntha the source of the Purushas. This is just about going too far theologically for the Ramanujas, the Madhvas, and 
and so forth. It's a, it's a, it's a stretch. Um, but clearly this is what the Bhagavatam says. Some arguments will come here. First of all, first argument will come is that, well, here in the list of avatars, Krishna has been mentioned. Hmm? A few verses back, Krishna was also mentioned. So here Krishna is listed as one of the avatars. He's listed as the ninth, uh, Kirsten Balaram, 19th and 20th hmm, in the list of avatars. But we note here carefully that unlike the description of any of the other avatars in this list, the uh, significant word used to describe him is Bhagavan. He says, Bhagavan Arhad. Bhagavan Aharad Bharam. So Bhagavan, who, who like, um, uplifted the world, something like that, removed the burden of the world. Hmm? This is how he's described. The implication of Balaram, of course, is that he's not an avatar either. He's the expansion, there's a difference. Hmm? So he's not coming from the Purusha, he's not coming from the. Uh, Mahanarayana in Vaikuntha. So, uh, even when he's mentioned, he comes at a particular time like an avatar and in a conventional manner through the Purusha, it would have so appeared because Brahma went to the shore of the ocean of milk as it's described. He meditated on the Vishnu. Vishnu said, Vasudeva Grahe. Hmm. Um, what is it? Sakshad Bhagavan. Mm, purusha Paraha. Mm. Uh, actually, uh, he was told uh, that, uh, that the, the Parapurusha, who is Bhagawan, who is Sakshad Bhagawan, he will appear in the house. Vasudeva, Vasudeva Grihe. Vasudeva Grihe, in the house of Vasudev. Mm. So the Purusha is giving this message to to Brahma, but he's saying something very special about Krishna at the same time. He's saying the Parapurusha, the Supreme Purusha, who's that, Mahavishnu? No, because he says Bhagavan Parapurusha. Purusha also means person, so it means the, per, the Supreme Purusha, who's Bhagavan. Oh, that must be Narayan. No, he says Sakshat Bhagavan Parapurusha Para, who is independently. Bhagawan, who is directly Bhagawan, Sakshat Swayam, same idea. Swayam is used here, Swayam Bhagawan. Iti che, eh, 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 Krishna's too, Bhagawan Swayam. Bhagawan Swayam, Swayam means of his own accord. He is not a dependent manifestation of divinity, he is the independent source of all dependent manifestations of divinity. Indeed, the very first verse of the Bhagavatam tells us about this Bhagavan, Vasudev, Sri Krishna, when it, uh, the same thing when it uses the word Swarat, independent, Swayam, Bhagavan. So this, 
also then there are many arguments that are given that are very relative to the time. They'll be compelling to us as much as we enter into the time, and we do to some extent. We enter into a world of scriptural uh, um, evidence and uh, within the, the, the Gaudiya sect itself, we, if we want to make a theological point, we will, we will have to support it with, with, this, with scripture and so forth. And of course, if we're speaking to someone in another lineage of Vedanta, who has also some credence in this body of knowledge, the, the scriptural canon, the Eastern revelation, then these arguments will have some value. Um, as much as we are can tie into the value of that, of revelation, hmm, the significance of that, the kind of the basic idea is what? That, that, that if we want perfect knowledge, and we all do, by which we can be perfectly happy, hmm, then we have to have a perfect means for arriving at perfect knowledge. And the perfect means is to fold one's hands. I mean, it's beyond us. We are steeped in imperfection, so we need help from perfection. Hmm? So this is the idea of revelation. Should the finite want to know the infinite, how will it be possible? That's a mathematical impossibility, it would seem, but no, because the infinite, out of its infinite capacity, can reveal itself to the finite if it should so desire. So reality is not less than us, it is more than us, more alive than us. And so revelation is a is a means by which the absolute or ultimate reality reaches out to us. Hmm? And uh, so we have some sense about about this. I mean, now you get down to the our argument that the revelation is these particular books and then and they require interpretations and it becomes complemented and your epistemology becomes questionable. But we want to go here to the main kind of uh, crux of the argument that those steeped in imperfection require help from perfection. The finite needs uh, the infinites uh, of its own accord it will be known, the infinite. Now we cannot fight our way there or something like this. This is a bhakti idea. So uh, if we can get that kind of um, sensible, reasonable argument in place, then we can deal with kind of what appears to be a breakdown of the argument of revelation when you have to interpret scripture and there are different interpretations and even the devil can quote the scripture kind of ideas and so forth. All this can be explained in a, in a discourse on uh, Vedantic, uh, Gaudi Vedantic epistemology and, and so forth, but it's not our subject per se. Uh, this evening, the point we're bringing it up in relation to is that as we enter into a world of times gone by, so to speak, the kind of arguments that are raised here for establishing the supremacy of Krishna are are very interesting, compelling, relevant, and so forth. How relevant will they be to the neighbors? Hmm? Who never heard of Narayan? Hmm? And you want to tell them Krishna is superior to Narayan. Uh, right? Uh, so <laughs> we should think about that as well. But with regard to the time, we have to understand... These were really good arguments. I mean, they're good arguments today, too, but they don't take into consideration all of the uh, arguments of today 
But if we look at the core of these arguments, we'll find that they do address the um, the present times. They do serve well to um, make a case for the idea that the very heart of the Absolute is what is meant by the two syllables, Krishna. Hmm? The heart, and you decide for yourself whether that's the, the full face of the Absolute. If the Absolute had a head like a Buddha, if it had, you know, if it was a sacrificer, if it was wise, if it was this, that, and the other thing, would it be complete if it didn't have a heart? Hmm? And so full of a heart that it's in, in, compared to being in romantic love, steeped in romantic love, this idea. So, for the moment, addressing the scriptural arguments and the arguments that were so pertinent to the time, um, this, this idea of Bhagwan and Bhagwan Swayam and so forth are mentioned. Jiva Goswami brings out the idea that um, in one of the sacred texts, um, maybe a Kadasi Tattva or something like that, it's mentioned that the subject um, should, uh, the predicate should not, in Sanskrit composition, precede the subject. So the predicate must follow the subject. The subject is the known, the predicate which is not known about the subject that is being played out. So the subject is Krishna. The predicate is Bhagavan Swayam. We've heard of Krishna. Everybody who's familiar with the sacred texts in the time had heard of Krishna. But what's not known about Krishna is the predicate in this line here. Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna's too Bhagavan. And too means but, but too also means with, it could be also uh, taken to mean with, with emphasis, emphatically so, with certainty. But um, Krishna is certainly Swayam Bhagavan. Hmm? The Bhagavan who is, uh, exists of his own accord, not a dependent manifestation of divinity. So, another argument uh, he, he makes is in his, in his Krishna Sandarbha, which is one of the seminal treaties. Uh, of, of the uh, of uh, the, the uh, our, our theologians, Krishna Sandarbha is, uh, is one of six Sat Sandarbha Jiva Goswami. Uh, it it is based on this verse. It's really really a sutra, one line from a verse. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. The whole treatise and it's lengthy is all arising out of this. Hmm? Indeed, he says that this line. This pada, as it's called in Sanskrit, one line, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, is a sutra. It's a sutra means like a thread. It ties together our understanding of the, the whole of the absolute, the whole of the pantheon of gods and goddesses and avatars of of, uh, of Hinduism, which looks like a multi-god, you know, from the Christian perspective, crazy heathen um, idea that should be abandoned and... and, and, and uh, replaced with uh, monotheism and so forth. Hmm. So the understanding Krishna, the source, then this explains everyone, all the deities. It's uh, in perspective. It's a very interesting concept. And um, Krishna's too, Bhagavan Sayam. And so it is also said that, well, what, in the text of composition, he makes the argument that 
Yes, Krishna is mentioned as an avatar, but he's also mentioned here after all the avatars. And in composition, the most important point should be made last. Same argument is made with regard to the verse, the other verse that is tied to this verse that we mentioned. Brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti shabdite. This verse is one line from a verse from Srimad Bhagavatam, comes in the previous chapter. The entire Bhagavatsandarva, the entire Paramatma Sandarva, hmm? describing, describing the eternality of the form of God, describing the significance, the implications of the Paramatma feature of God, Jiva Goswami's treatise, are based on that verse. Hmm? That verse and this verse are tied together by Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami hmm? in his Krishna, in his Chaitanya Charitamrita, the main book of all the Gaudi Vaishnavas in a sense. And he, this is his Vastanade Shloka, the verse that defines the subject matter of the book. He combines them together and adds one thing. He, he, by, by doing that, he wants to say Bhagawan is the full feature, and he wants to say Krishna is that spine Bhagawan, and one other thing. What is that? And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is that Krishna. So there's another, taking us another step. Taking us another step. So, how then will we explain this in modern times? Before that, we should say, what, what is the relevance to Gaudiya Vaishnavism? Uh, wh why the big deal? And Krishna is the source. Hmm? After all, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we accept if you want to be a Ram Bhakta, be a Ram Bhakta. If you want to be a Vishnu Bhakta and serve in awe and reverence, go for it. We're inclusivists <laughs> in this sense, and all these are included this is the implication of Swayam Bhagavan. All the other aspects of divinity are within him. So if you want part of him, take it. Hmm? You want to relate with part of him, an aspect of him, then that's not only is it good, it's best. It's best for you. And that's the best feature of the Absolute. This is how, how we speak about it. That's the best feature because subjectively it's best for you. There is some objectivity, though, with which we seek to say that nonetheless Krishna is the source. Hmm? And Krishna, from an aesthetic point of view, point of view of aesthetic rapture, affords us greater capacity for loving uh, reciprocation. So if you want bhakti, then, in the full sense of the term, the idea is two things have to be in place. Your bhakti has to be unmotivated. It can't be for something else. It has to be for itself only. So one has to give without any ulterior motive and give without reservation. And to do that, well, you have to have on the other end one who can take entirely. If you're going to give entirely of yourself, then the problem with that may be if I give that to a, an object, repose that in an object that cannot take everything, I'll, it's a recipe for frustration. I might give myself entirely to my children, but they may not uh, be able to uh, <laughs> reciprocate. Or, and taking means reciprocating. When the object of love takes our love, hmm, if it's really an object of love, then it, in the context of its taking, it reciprocates. This is the idea of Krishna. He is the taker. Hmm. In the context of his taking, just like the stomach takes, and, and it, it does something with food that no other part of the body can, it distributes it mystically, magically, whatever, uh, to, uh, not that it can't be explained, but it distributes it to every part of the body. Hmm? So the taker, the center, 
is appropriately so, because the taker's a giver, the giver and the taker, they're one and they're they're different at the same time. Hmm? If each takes his respective position, they they end up being givers, we see. Hmm? The taker takes his position, the giver takes her position, and uh, what we find is giving prevails. Hmm? Love prevails. So, um, um, there is a, there is, with each manifestation of divinity, there's a corresponding realm and corresponding possibilities within, um, uh, of loving reciprocation. So here lies the greatest prospect, is the idea. We, Yodi Vaishnavism, the idea is to sit everyone down and serve them a feast and let people eat according to their, how much they want. The whole thing is there. If someone wants to devour the whole plate and ask for more, go for it. Hmm? If someone wants to just pick a little, that's fine. So, Gaudi Vaishnavism idea is we give the full meal. We lay the whole thing out. Hmm? And therefore we make this point. Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam. And the Krishna, who is Swayam Bhagavan, is the Krishna standing next to Radha. So, what we're highlighting here, when we highlight Krishna as the supreme original Bhagavan, He's the one standing next to Radha. We're simultaneously highlighting the embodiment of the fullest love. Hmm. So, do we want love partly, fully. This is this is the to what extent. This is the question. Hmm. So, it's uh, an important point, um, and it's important also because it establishes this idea that there is the possibility of intimacy with the absolute that transcends reverential love. I mean, this is a very revolutionary theistic idea. The Goswamis wanted to make this point, hmm, based on the Bhagavatam, that agape, to use a Greek term, which is you know, godly love, reverential love, is transcended by an eros. <laughs> it's kind of backwards. But it's a transcendental eros. Eros means erotic love instead of reverential love. Hmm? Erotic love. Agape is transcended by a kind of eros that is supra-transcendental. Hmm? And its position is such that not only is agape uh, like subjugated to it or, or um, uh, kind of... Uh, a, a lesser manifestation, a less complex uh, manifestation of, of love. Um, but So it subordinates agape, but it also subordinates the object of love himself, Krishna. It's, it's, it's saying like, transcendental eros is the highest thing. Hmm. This is a very uh, extraordinary idea. Hmm. It's said, for example, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, the pen of Krishna Das Kaviraj, that Krishna is saying, I'm not what they don't know about me in Vaikuntha. They know something about Krishna. In Vaikuntha, they know of Krishna as if he's an avatar of Vishnu, of Narayan. Hmm? Sometimes Narayan shows a semblance of Krishna Leela in Vaikuntha. Hmm? They don't know this idea. So, therefore, the Goswamis are saying, this is like a New Testament here. This is extraordinary. Hmm? A secret Sweta Dweep, it's called. Sweta Dweep, it means like private island. You can imagine 
some guy in the Pacific's got a private island. You hear about what goes on there. Not just anybody can get in. Hmm? So this is the idea of Krishna Lok, Golok. Hmm? You know, it's depicted as with like a lotus, and there's protections on all sides. Not just anyone can get in. You can't go there with your shoes on. Hmm? Very special place. Bhaje Shweta Dvipam Tamaham Golokumitiyam. Brahma says, Bhaje Shweta Dvipam Tamaham Golokum Itiyam. Such a nice statement. Shriyakanta Kanta Parama Purusha Kalupataravo Druma Bhumis Chintamani Ganamayi Toyam Amritam Kataganam Nartam Gamanam Bhamsi Priyasaki Bhaje Shweta Dvipam Tamaham Golokum Itiyam he, Brahma, describes this, which has been revealed to him hmm, in the text, in Gopaltapani, in Bhagavatam. It's described in Brahma Samhita. This is Brahma Samhita, he says. Shriyakanta kanta parama purusha kalupataravo. Chintamani prakurasadmasu. All these things. Hmm. Um, there the, there the, uh, all the walking is dancing. All the talking is song. Hmm. The, Shriyakanta Kanta Parama Purusha Kalpatarva. Shriyakanta Kanta. He says that there, that Govinda uh, um, uh, is surrounded by so many Lakshmis. Hmm? Lakshmi Sahasra Satasam Brahma Sevimana, another same idea. Lakshmi Sahasra, what is the implication of that? Hmm? This is a very deep point he's making. Hmm? Because in in Vaikuntha there's one Lakshmi, one Lakshmi. Hmm? There's Narayan and there's one Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the goddess of fortune, you know, the, 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 and so on, hmm? the chaste wife of Narayana. Lakshmi Sahasra Satasambrama. There, the Govinda, this feature of divinity, is surrounded by thousands of Lakshmis. Hmm? Thousands of Lakshmis, Lakshmi Sahasra Satasamra, endowed with such affectionate love that that the goddess of fortune of, uh, in in Baikuntas is astounded by that. Should she find out about that? Hmm? Therefore, the poetic ideas are there. Lakshmi wanted to become a gopi. <laughs> she went to Vrindavan to perform austerities. Krishna appeared and said. You can't become my maidservant here like that. You have to change your body. And you have to marry somebody else first. <laughs> Lakshmi fainted, the chaste wife of Narayan. Me? Marry somebody else? How is it possible? Hmm? Lakshmi, fasting, can you imagine? I mean, this is the royal queen of Vaikuntham. Hmm? What will be her dinner? Hmm? <laughs> She's fasting, maybe eating roots and things. Uh, and what, what, what is her ornamentation? There she's living like a tapasvi, like, a, like a, 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 an ascetic renunciate, undergoing austerities to try to attain a position in the entourage of Krishna. And Krishna appears and says, <laughs> doesn't work like that. There's a way to get here. Hmm? This is what the Bhagavatam is given. This is what the Goswamis have taught. There's a kind of bhajan to go there. This is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu brought to the world. Krishna says to the pen of Krishna Das, this world is unknown. 
even in Vaikuntha. But I'm coming to tell the ordinary world about it, to make it available. And why I'm coming? Oh, it's a deep subject. Hmm? I got in a jam. Hmm? And I started thinking about myself real deeply. And I had an existential crisis. I looked at Radha's eyes and saw the love she had for me and knew that she knew something about me that I don't know. She experienced me in a way that's more than I experienced myself. The measure of her love exceeds my experience of love, and I'm the king of love, Rasaraj. This is the existential crisis of Bhagwan, Swayam Bhagwan. What to do? Hmm? This is the birth of Chaitanya. Hmm? We're not looking for historicity here. <laughs> of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's history can be traced out, but the history of Krishna. Hmm? We can make some case for the history of someone named Krishna must have been around at some point. Hmm? But uh, he's found in the heart of Chaitanya. Do you think he's not real, Krishna? Look at the transformations that Chaitanya underwent. I mean, what, you know, to go for a moment cross-culturally, um, you know, I heard a day, guy today uh, speaking about the argument for miracles with regard to God. Um, and this is a Christian argument for the, the miracle of the Christ. And, you know, there were witnesses. Hmm. Uh, he was buried in a tomb. And then the witnesses, a number of them, all saw him outside of the tomb later on, resurrected. So this is to contradict nature. This is a miracle. A person in the tomb, dead and buried, and certainly dead after being on the cross, came out and came back to life. So a miracle was performed by God, his son, whatever, was brought back from the dead. Hmm? And there are witnesses and so forth. A lot of presuppositions here, a lot of premises. That, that uh, but, but at any rate, I mean, this story has gone so far. Hmm? We have the apostles of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu also. Hmm? This has been given as much mileage for a number of reasons, but not because of any lack in the story. Or any lack of miracles, for that matter. Or eyewitnesses. I mean, how many biographies are there of, of Christ? We have so many biographies of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so much consistency within them, while there are differences as well. Different understandings of his divinity, but no misunderstanding about his divinity. And no misunderstanding that the divinity of Krishna is so much brought to life in the person of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that to meet Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is you, you, you cannot not believe in Krishna. Hmm? You cannot you cannot talk about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu without talking about Krishna. You cannot contemplate Chaitanya without uh, uh, contemplating Krishna. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the love of Krishna. And love of Krishna and Krishna are one and the same. He is Krishna and love of Krishna at the same time. Hmm? So the history of Chaitanya we can trace out better than the history of Christ, Jesus. It's only 500 years ago. So many witnesses to his many, many miracles, hmm? and to his, and he's a testament, a living testament, if you will, to the reality of Krishna. And he's a, he's a eternal moment and the most uh, esoteric moment, most introspective moment of the life of the. Uh, the, the absolute, the center, the romantic heart of uh, divinity. This is the idea. Hmm? So, uh, an important verse here. From today's world, of course, 
we have to make, as you can see, some of these arguments, they will be useful even in today's world. We would have to make an argument, first of all, that there is God. Hmm? They didn't have to make that argument. Hmm? Um, so we would have to make that argument. We would make an argument not for miracles, or not the ontological argument, or the, there's argument for morals. Hmm? Argument for morals is what? Is that there are absolute morals. In other words, while someone may think that it's morally um, correct to act, um, what's, the one, what's the one example? Let's say it's uh, morally correct not to steal. And then within that, some people may steal in this way or in that way. Or, um, in other words, thieves want to divide the loot honestly, something like that. So there are there, there are principles like this. They're applied and understood differently in different cultures in ways that almost seem to contradict themselves. But the principle is the same. So, so if there are absolute morals, the argument would be, the only way there can be is if that morality is, has an ontological anchor to it. Hmm? If you unplug morality from an ontological anchor, then you have a sea of, of relativity. You have a relative morality that you may construct for the sake of human comfort, survival of the species, and so forth, but it's not by any means an absolute necessity. So if there are moral absolutes, then this is a strong argument for morality being anchored in some ontologically means uh, it's an argument for God is the point. So anyway, we would make rather that's an interesting one, an argument from consciousness, something like that. This argument's been made, but it's been made very simply. The argument is simply that, well, today it's simply that, well, um, well, I'll play it out in a, in, a, in a perhaps more than it than it is. Uh, if we have the time, what time is it? Well, I'll have to go quickly, but you know, basically, the the the, the idea that consciousness is causal. Hmm? Uh, well, we would say consciousness is transcendent. Consciousness is supernatural. So we have a natural world, and we have the supernatural. So when someone asks, "Well, how can you measure the soul?" which means, "How can you observe the soul?" we will say. You know, how can you describe it, measure it, uh, observe it? We would say the same way that you describe, measure, observe, golden. To use the word, Hagodia, color. Hmm? Could it be red, or blue, or black? Hmm? Understand what I'm saying? We're saying, can you measure red? You can measure the photons and how they arrange with refraction of light that says red, but the hard problem as it's thought in consciousness is the experience of red. What is the experience of anything? Hmm? Why is there experience and how is that happening? Hmm? This is the hard problem of consciousness that, that uh, science had difficulty figuring out. So when we say, what is the soul? We say it's red. Red is the soul. Hmm? Green is the soul. Happy is the soul. Sad is the soul. Hmm? What we're saying is the soul is consciousness. This is different from the Christian argument, which says soul is some other thing. 
that's kind of infused in to humans who are conscious and have consciousness, like animals do to some extent. Hmm? Self-consciousness there in human society, but Christians want to, as I understand, infuse the soul inside of that. We're not positing anything outside of our experience here. Vedanta is not positing anything outside of our experience. It's saying, who doesn't have experience of consciousness? <laughs> consciousness is experience. That's what it is. You understand? The capacity to experience is relative to consciousness alone. Hmm? So we are, I mean, if nothing else, <laughs> experience. A capacity to experience. Hmm? So we're just describing consciousness differently than than a physicalist, a naturalist, a materialist might, or would, or does. We're saying it's it's supernatural. Then say, well, now you're say, positing something supernatural. No, uh, yes, <laughs> uh, we are. But we are saying that 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 um, first of all, to posit that consciousness is not causal. The consciousness is caused. That that the matter is causal, and consciousness is subordinate to it. As different as consciousness is for matter, that's supposed to make sense. They they they, they would like to think like this. They have good reasons for wanting to think like that. Looking at classical physics, thinking there's a it's a closed system. Nothing from outside can come in and influence. So. Maybe there's a God who set the thing up, but he can't interfere, that's deism, and so on. No place for, for will, free will. Hmm? So they see that the physical world works good from a classical point of view, except, you know, if you don't, let's not complicate it with the quantum reality. You know, we have to to some extent, but at any rate, they always look at this mind-brain problem from a classical physics point of view. They find no... You know, no room for some other thing, something separate from from matter. They, they, so they want to demonstrate that. Hmm? But before we go into extent to which they have, what observable evidence there is to support such a such a premise, it's worth thinking about the unreasonableness of it. Hmm? The unreasonableness that, con- that consciousness is not foundational. This is an old argument from Vedanta. Hmm? And it's an argument in Western philosophy too, that to deny consciousness as being foundational is the height of um, unreasonableness. Because why? It requires consciousness to do it. Hmm? If you want to deny consciousness as being foundational, it requires consciousness. The very act of denying is, you see, so you, <laughs> it's an unreasonable claim. Hmm? On its face, it's unreasonable, and. It is very counterintuitive, because the entire this is this is something that humans are hardwired to think that consciousness is causal without thinking about. It. In other words, we think in my mind I have a thought, and then my body carries it out. Hmm? Causation goes from up to down, as it's as it's thought, as it's felt. That's how it's experienced, and this is not just an intuition of you, and maybe you, but of everybody. That kind of intuition cannot be dismissed. If we're just driving along in the car and you have an intuition, turn left, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but if everybody has the same intuition, turn left slowly. Now, <laughs> you have to give it a little more credence. The whole of the population 
feels like this. They act like this, even if they philosophize otherwise. You have, in order to philosophize, you have this is a presupposition. Consciousness is foundational for philosophizing, for doing scientific experiment, for making observations, and so forth. So it seems utterly absurd, but I told you, philosophy bottomed out here. So, but they're going for this, and re- there are compelling reasons. There are compelling re- to, to make it material or to, to understand it as material. Compelling reasons being that basically there's a very good, or apparently good, workable understanding of nature. That workable means by working with what we understand from it, we can accomplish many things. Whether they are the things worth accomplishing, well, that shouldn't be a question. If there's no purpose to life, there's nothing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, which is a popular idea in some parts of the scientific community. Hmm. So anyway, the, uh, on account of that, um, they don't. Many don't have room for this idea of a supernatural. Now, at the same time, it, it, it could be said, well, consciousness, uh, fine. It feels like this. It's unreasonable to think otherwise. Fine, but. Even if that's the case, if there's observable evidence that contradicts that, then what? Then what's universally intuitive and makes sense, they would say, has to be dismissed because the observable empiric facts demonstrate otherwise. Hmm? So, bring on the facts, then. Hmm? Bring on the observable evidence that conclusively demonstrates that consciousness is epiphenomenon of, of brain or any of the other numerous materialistic, physicalist, physicalist, naturalist theories on consciousness. Bring them all. There are dozens of them. Bring them all to bear. There, not only is there not one hmm, that offers complex, com- comprehensive uh, proof as to the material nature of consciousness, denying its supernatural um, you know, feeling, but, but they're all, to one extent or another, at odds with one another. Hmm? Daniel Dennett's consciousness explained has been described by other in the science of mind and, and, uh, and, and uh, philosophy of mind and neuroscience as consciousness unexplained. <laughs> That's how they've commented, many of his peers. And this is a popular book, Consciousness Unexplained. He explained it away. He didn't explain what it is, or he thought he did, anyway. This is just another one of the many theories out there. Then you've got, who's that fellow? The, the Mysteriums, they're called, I guess. It's his philosophy. It's a popular guy, forgive me, I forget his name now. But he says, you know, the consciousness is, is a mystery. Not a miracle, but a mystery. And we are just not equipped to understand it. And we never will be. Okay, great. <laughs> great. I mean, it's a profound theory in a sense. It gets, it gets you know, some people going, but hmm, the point is you can look at them one after another, after another, after another, and um, there's no real, um, there's no comprehensive evidence. And, and, and it's readily admitted. They're still working on it. They think they're getting closer. That's the perennial, Prabhupada's language, post-dated check, you know, that we'll, we'll demonstrate the, this. But meanwhile, there are a handful of scientifically credible 
theories as to the um, they give support to the idea of free will, a free agent, um, and they're largely coming from looking at the problem of mind-brain from a quantum perspective rather than from a classical physics perspective. And, um, of course, they're not accepted by other people as well, but they are theories. They are credible, as credible or more than any of the other um, uh, physical theories on consciousness. This is not the popular side, because after all, as I said, we've got the world to work in a certain way. It works for us. And, you know, if suddenly there's a supernatural, there's a lot of problems with the way the world works for us, because maybe we're working against the supernatural, and maybe that's not a good idea, and and so on and so forth. So um, it's a lot of problems. It's not just an intellectual problem here. It's a moral problem also. Uh, it's a moral kind of resistance, if you will, to the supernatural. It's quite quite prominent, which is right out of the Srimad Bhagavatam. I mean, it describes this is the nature of material existence. Everyone wants to be the center. It's just, it's, it says it's a survival of the fittest. It doesn't end there. That's the difference. Hmm? And so there are credible... Penrose, you know, Robert Penrose has a very interesting theory to this in this regard. Uh, I read something the other day. Someone had said that uh, was interviewing him and said, you know, your critics say this and this, and, and then he, you know, he had a nice response to it. And they offer no explanatory gap, you know, to nothing to bridge the expense. I've given one, and it's not just God or something like that, but uh, from a scientific point of view, Henry Stapp was uh, who's here in Berkeley. He has a very credible. Theory that's that everybody's just kind of quiet about because it's so credible. Hmm? Don't want to give it too much room, <laughs> but his is a quantum interactive um, um, something. Um, um, dualism, quantum interactive dualism. Dualism means there's a difference between consciousness and matter, basically between mind and brain, or in our terminology, consciousness and matter. In the Vedantic terminology. There's a difference between mind and brain, too. The difference is the difference between gross and subtle matter. And there's a difference between mind and brain, gross and subtle matter, and consciousness. And consciousness uh, is mediated uh, in terms of influencing matter through subtle matter. Subtle matter is the mechanism that links the uh, consciousness and the physical world. Of course, this is the big question. So, well... Your theory sounds good and so forth, maybe, but where, how, can, how can something that's non-physical influence the physical world? Well, it's really about better understanding that which is non-physical. <laughs> because we, we tend to, to superimpose upon the, 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 the idea of the non-physical, physical properties and necessities. Hmm? I mean, this is where we're steeped in, so we, we want to think of consciousness in terms of how matter works. So if, 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 if consciousness is different in substance from matter, how can it, how can it, where is its influence? How does it come in? How does it do that? How can we find it and measure it and see how it's doing that and so forth? And, of course, it's immeasurable. Hmm? Yeah, so says the Gita, Maya means to measure, to try to bring it all within one's grasp, uh, and so forth. Hmm. So, 
so, but anyway, there are some scientists who have given, based on empiric evidence from a quantum perspective, looking at the mind-brain problem, a credible scientific theory for a free agent consciousness, which then lends itself very well to the theory of Vedanta, that consciousness is supernatural. Hmm? Now we say, well, that's a, you know, maybe, okay, maybe there's a free agent, maybe there's God, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily supernatural or that there's a, there, or that there's a God. Someone could make that argument. But we would say at that point, now we do this. Let's go to the experts on consciousness hmm? who, who have said this all along for thousands of years. Not only have they said this, but they have devised a methodology to experience consciousness as independent of matter. The yogi who stays awake in his sleep, hmm? for example, we would talk to him. Hmm? Now, granted, his experience and the um, metaphysical implications of that we cannot verify in a laboratory, but then again, should it be dismissed altogether? When, in fact, we find the mystic experience of consciousness has correspondence cross-culturally through all different religious traditions, wherever you find the mystics, whether it be the Kabbalists in Judaism or the or the Sufis in Islam or the the saints in uh, the Saint jo- the, the John the you know the um, Francis, uh, the Sissies, and uh, and the Shankars, and uh, Ramanujas, and Sri Chaitanya, and so forth. Hmm? All these mystics, they don't say exactly the same thing, but they say so much in common about their experience that it has to be taken seriously. Not only that, they're saying that consciousness is different from matter, and for all intents and purposes, they appear to be separate from matter. And all that matters to people who are absorbed in a material conception of life, living in a cave. Eating doesn't matter to them, but it seems to come somehow or other. People find them and bring them food. Hmm? So they, they, obviously they're in the body, the theory is, well, as long as I'm in the body, then the body's going to need some sustenance. But the extent to which the body needs sustenance whether they need interaction with others, a social life, and all of this, which is is, is considerably is, is frightening, practically, to the materialist. Hmm? Yoga is a system for isolating consciousness from matter and demonstrating this this theory. Hmm? And 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 they have, and the theory is that consciousness is more than matter, and they. They seem to have more. Nothing else matters to them. Hmm? They don't need anything. Hmm? Only themselves. Their experience of the self. Their experience of consciousness. These people, you cannot dismiss them. People who have no experience of this, they think, oh, you know, I went went to uh, Yosemite National Park. I climbed the hill at sunset. Alone in nature, the vastness of that, the beauty, all. I, I felt a little, you know, more, and I was small and so forth, you know. But what does that, that, does that mean there's a God? Hmm? 
This is a very, very different experience than a, than a systematic and disciplined approach to isolating consciousness from matter experientially. This is what yoga is about. And it is very objective. It, it requires extreme objectivity. Hmm? Yoga. You, you, <laughs> you can't do yoga just at the lab and then come home and do something else. You, you have to be completely unbiased. That's what detachment is about, objectivity. If I'm too attached to something, I can't be objective about it. I love you so well. Everybody else knows you're a bum, but I think you're good. Because hmm? I'm attached to you. I can't see clearly. Yoga involves attachment, detachment. Hmm? So that if the more we become detached, the more objective we actually become. Hmm? So it, it requires a radical objectivity hmm? in understanding the subjective component of life hmm? <laughs> and experiencing it. Hmm? So there's reason then, if we have a scientific theory that's credible that says, that gives us room to think, based on observation, that there credibly could be something, the consciousness could be uh, causal and could be uh, in substance, uh, substantively different from matter. Hmm? And we do have such theories then, as I say, is it unreasonable then to go to the mystics who've been saying this all along? And then ex and experiencing that, and talking about it, and talking about it from different places at different times, and saying the same thing, basically the same thing. What are they saying basically? That I'm a unit of consciousness, and I am being. I am, uh, I am constituted of being. That means enduring being. Hmm? I'm a unit of being, a unit of knowing and a unit of loving. Hmm? That's what they say, basically. Hmm? Now suddenly we come back to Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Shabdate. These moments in the life of the Absolute. The Absolute has been described in Gaudi Vedanta as being, knowing, loving. Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. The mystics are saying, I'm a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Now, some mystics say, hmm, what? That, that there's only one soul. There is being, knowing, loving, and you are being, you are knowing, and you are loving. Now, while they have some experience of consciousness, we think that they have some confusion about it as well. Hmm? That such theories of consciousness are problematic because they deny experience. Because experience requires a duality of some sort, some sort, there to be experienced and the experiencer. So if I be being, and I be loving, if I am loving, I am knowledge, I am being, I have no experience, <laughs> really what am I? <laughs> this is more of like a materialistic explanation of consciousness. That's why Gaudiya Vedanta doesn't give much credibility to this kind of, this is a kind of a Mayavad, if you will, idea. Hmm? So we say, no, uh, 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 yes, we are a unit of being, knowing and loving. Hmm? 
and in relation to a source, a quanta or, or you know, a, 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 a source of being, knowing, and loving. Now, when we analyzed the being, knowing, and loving moments of the Absolute, what did we conclude? That the loving aspect was the most complete aspect. The Bhagawan aspect was the most complete aspect. Hmm? And when we analyzed that, in terms of the ideas in Vedanta about um, loving, we found that, that the idea that loving and intimacy had more value potentially than loving in all raw and reverence, objectively, because there's greater possibility of reciprocal dealings, which is what love is about. So the more there's reciprocation, the more there's uh, love. So the idea, the concept of Krishna, that the Absolute has a kind of a heart, in a, in a sense, and that you can get very close to that, and there can be a rhythm hmm, between the finite and the infinite, infinite of exchange, where there's a union, where you and I become one, hmm, but there's enough difference that, 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 there's, that there's this reciprocal dealing with what love is about. Hmm? This is what the Gaudias have talked about when they talk about Krishna. This is the idea. So if we say that from the mystics we get some credible argument that, that, that consciousness is about being, about knowing, about loving, and the loving aspect, this is the most complete aspect, and we're going in the direction of Krishna. This is what the Bhagav- where the Bhagavatam takes us. So this is how you would kind of frame, I think, <laughs> an argument for Krishna's two, Bhagavan Swayam, the implications of that. In our times, Jiva Goswami and Krishnadas Kaviraj, they framed it a little differently. In theistic times, where the scriptures were the standard of knowledge and so forth, they explained it on that basis. We should know that too, as Gaudiya Vedantas, but we should think about, in our times, the implications, the significance of this, and how to make um, a, a interesting, at least, and credible um, um, reasonable uh, support for the idea. Hmm? So, Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam. Any question? Yes. Um, why is it that Bhagavatam uses the word Bhagavan in, in relation to like Shiva and some other like powerful devotees? It seems very confusing. Well, as I said, it's a difficult book to understand. It has more than one meaning. Hmm? And so sometimes it's used um, for other reasons, and that's why, if you want to understand the book, Jiva Goswami has told us how to do that. He's shown this verse as the key around which the whole thing revolves. He showed how in Bhagavatam, Vyasa himself, the author, explained how he came to write the Bhagavatam hmm? in trance and so forth, what the implications of his trance were, that the Bhagavatam is then describing. So we have a hub around which all the statements of the Bhagavatam orbit and and are understood in context of. Mm -hmm. What else? We're going a little over time. Maybe we should stop there. Grantra Srimad Bhagavatam.